Hey everyone, and thank you for tuning into LearnCast. My name is Inebuchi, and joining me today is Clint. Today we will be discussing the financial sector and stabilization policies for economics review. Uh, so first, uh, we'll be covering the financial sector. Uh, this covers many things relating to money, uh, like money supply, money demand curves, uh, monetary policy, that kind of thing. Uh, but first, we should probably cover the three tasks of the financial system. Clint, if you want to take care of that. Oh yeah, so the three tasks of the financial system are uh, to reduce transaction costs, uh, risk, and providing liability. So reducing transaction costs, that includes like uh, making, I guess, uh, purchasing stuff easier uh, and less uh, cumbersome for the users. Reducing risk is like, um, I guess, uh, for example, investing in something like Dogecoin is extremely risky, but investing in the dollar is not as risky. So this financial system is to supposed to provide a method of uh, buying or, uh, I guess, performing transactions with little risk. And finally, providing liability, so uh, making sure that the money is actually worth something. Yeah, and uh, moving on, we should also an important aspect of uh, this is the of is the savings investment spending identity, which is just to say that like savings and investment uh, in an economy are typically equal. So uh, everything that's saved, uh, the the sum of everything that's saved will equal the sum of everything that's invested in a fiscal year. Um, and some more imp important concepts to go over for the first module is uh, just interest rate, budget, surplus, deficit balance, uh, assets, and that kind of thing. So if you know about those going into uh, your econ exams, you'll do pretty well. Uh, moving on, let's cover the role of money. So money is a... Oh, yeah. Uh, money is a medium of exchange. Um... And it's like something, it's what we used to, uh, I guess, uh, trade for items. Uh, before in the past, people would uh, trade um, like goods for other goods, but now we use r money as a medium of exchange so we can uh, sell or purchase items. It also, we want to make sure that it has a store value and a unit of count. There's also uh, other stuff like menu, uh, like shoe leather costs, uh, which is the cost of like, um, doing the actual transactions, uh, uh, and then there's also um, menu costs, the cost of changing the prices for uh, money-related purchases. Yeah, and uh, let's move on to different types of money. So we have commodity, commodity-backed, and fiat money. Um, so commodity is basically things that have like inherent value, like gold, if you're trading gold, uh, that kind of thing. Well, commodity backed um, doesn't necessarily have inherent value, but it's backed up by something that does. An example of that is how the U.S. Uh, dollar used to be, where uh, it was based. It was based off of the gold that the U.S. had, um, and fiat money does not have any inherent value, nor is it backed by anything that does. But it's more backed by the trust that this that this money is going to have some like some value attached to it. So an example of that is today's money. Uh, well, today's U.S. money. 
where there's no gold, there's nothing really backed behind it other than the trust of the Federal Reserve. Uh, to move on, let's uh, just some more important topics to know about uh, for this module. We're in uh, the definition and measurement of money in your textbook. So that would be uh, currency and circulation, the money supply, uh, aggregate, or the monetary aggregate, that kind of thing. It's very important to know. Yeah, I'd like to bring up the topic of M1 versus M2 supply. And so M1 supply is, uh, this is something you'll be testing on in the AP exam and maybe the IB exam. And so M1 is just uh, including cash and checking deposits, uh, which are uh, extremely liquid. And then M2 are less liquid. And so these include, um, these are more broad. And so these include uh, like time, uh, I think savings deposits and uh, checking deposits and other easy to convert uh, near monies. And so near monies are stuff that you can uh, convert into money, but are not exactly like money. To move on, we should cover the time value of money. So basically, uh, money's value changes over time. And the reason why is because of interest. So money that, well, interest and inflation, but mostly interest in this case, where uh, like money that's in that's being loaned or something like that, like there's going to be interest that accumulates over time and so the future value of money will be different than the present value uh there are some formulas to know regarding this uh these are largely in your textbook but uh just to know like the formula for the future value of a certain value of money in a year and the present value of one dollar realized in one year like if you know those two formulas you'd be in pretty good shape and one last thing to note about this module, uh, like you can't buy the, you can't borrow the same amount of money that you own right now, or that you, that you plan to make in a year uh, right now, because there's going to be interest on that loan. So whenever you pay back that loan, you'll be paying the money that you originally borrowed plus interest. So that's just something to know about going into your exams. Um, I guess to move forward, we'll talk about banking and money creation. Uh, do you want to start us off with that, Clint? Oh uh, yeah, sure. So banks essentially uh, convert savings into investment through bank deposits. People deposit money into banks, and then uh, banks th those are the bank's assets, and then the bank uh, turns those into wait no when people deposit money into banks, sorry, it becomes a liability for banks. And then banks can also have assets, and then they also uh, give out loans to people. And so um, they use this is how the money is generated when people save, uh, and when people when the bank gives out loans, there is a, certainly a discrepancy in the um, the money that the bank actually has, and so this creates actually more supply in the uh, uh, the economy. Yeah, and uh, to go even further, uh, like. Things that you should know about concerning this is, of course, uh, required reserve ratios and bank reserves, which is basically like uh, every bank holds amount of, a certain amount of the uh, deposits that they get in reserve because they need to uh, be able to loan or just give out these deposits uh, to like their customers because, you know, 
they're going to need money. And of course, you don't want a situation like a bank run where there's a ton of people trying to get their uh, deposits at once and the bank doesn't have enough money to uh, give out to them. That's usually uh, the mark of a recession or some kind of economic downturn. And the government would usually have to bail the banks out of that, which is why we have required reserve ratios, which is basically that a percentage of uh, the reserve of the deposits that the banks receive have to be reserved instead of being able to be used for other things. Uh, but with that, let's move on to the Federal Reserve's history and structure. Um, so basically, the Fed's, uh, the Fed's primary role as a central bank is to regulate the banking system and monetary base. And uh, the bank, then the Fed usually does that through monetary policy. Uh, Clint, do you want to walk us over what monetary policy is? Yeah, so there are certain open market operations that the ba- the, the Fed can actually conduct in order to uh, expand or contract the economy. And so expansionary monetary policy uh, shifts the aggregate demand to the right, while, whereas contractionary monetary policy shifts aggregate demand to the left. And so the Fed can do this uh, through the, the Fed can increase uh, or expand uh, the economy by increasing mo- uh, money supply, which lowers interest rate and then causes higher investment spending, which raises income. And then higher uh, consumer spending via the multiplier will cause the aggregate demand to shift to the right. And then the opposite happens with contractionary monetary policy. And there are several open market operations that the Fed can do to achieve this um, policy. Uh, for expansionary, they can um, they can decrease the required reserves uh, ratio. They can uh, also decrease the discount rate, and they can buy bonds. For contractionary, they can increase the discount rate, increase the required reserves ratio, and then sell uh, bonds. And so, one way, easy way to remember is through the acronym. So, expansionary is down boy down, and then uh, there you just remember ISI for uh, contractionary yeah um and so to move on to the fed structure because we kind of we kind of went into a bit of the next module but just to go back a bit to the fed structure the fed is divided into two main parts we have the board of governors and we have the 12 federal reserve banks uh they both they both serve uh different functions but they do have a little bit of overlap and that uh, comes from the Federal Open Market Committee, which is which has both uh, people from the Board of Governors and the 12 Federal Reserve Banks on it. And uh, basically, important things to know regarding the Federal Reserve's history is the Panic of 1907, uh, the Bank Holiday, and uh, just important to know in general is the types of banks that we have like commercial investment and thrift banks but uh i guess we can move on to the federal reserve's monetary policy even though we already kind of touched on that um so again the fed can do a bunch of things to affect the economy like uh having reserve requirements or the discount rate but more often than not, the Fed affects the economy through open market operations, um, which again is buying or selling treasury bonds. 
which increases or decreases the monetary supply, respectively. Um, but with that, I guess we can move on to the money market. Do you want to uh, cover that, Clint? Uh, yeah, sure. So it'll kind of be hard to explain this without the visuals or like showing the graphs. But essentially, the money market has uh, measures the relationship between the quantity of money and the nominal interest rate. Remember that um, money, the money market is nominal interest rate, whereas the uh, loanable funds is real interest rate. This is crucial for the AP exam and the IB exam. And so what causes shifts in mon monetary demand is uh, changes in price level, real GDP, technology, and banking institutions. Some in important concepts to remember about the money market are uh, long and short-term interest rates, uh, the liquidity preference model, and the money demand versus money supply. And so money demand uh, slopes downward because as the quantity of money increases, nominal interest rate will decrease. Yeah. And um, I guess to move forward, uh, yeah, good things to know regarding this module is, of course, the money demand and money supply curves, the liquidity preference model, um, and the effects of short and long-term interest rates. Uh, but with that, we can move on to the last part of the financial sector, the market for loanable funds, which is basically... The grand idea behind this is that companies borrow money to pay for capital investment, provided that the rate of return is greater than the interest rate. So as long as they're going to get more from the investment, then they'll have to give back through the interest rate of their loan, then they will go for that investment. And so there's a graph for this, of course, uh, there's the real interest rate, and the quantity of loanable funds as the Y and X axis respectively. And you have supply for loanable funds uh, and demand for loanable funds. You can look up the graph online pretty easily if you want like a full visual of what it looks like. Uh, but basically a good thing to know about this module as well is the rate of return formula, which is basically the revenue minus the cost of the project, that whole thing, that whole uh, difference, divided by the cost of the project. And that'll give you a number, which if you multiply it by 100, will give you the rate. Um, and I guess the last big thing that you should know uh, before we move on to stabilization policies is the crowding out effect, which is basically just in super simple terms, the larger the government deficit, the less investment spending that occurs. And with that, I think we can move on. Clint, do you want to start us off with stabilization policies? Yeah, so I'll first start off with uh, fiscal policy. Uh, so there are actually two types of stabilization policies, fiscal and monetary. We already touched on monetary, so I won't be covering that. I'll be mostly focusing on fiscal. So budget, the formula to measure budget balance is equal to tax revenue minus government spending minus government transfers. This is just common sense, so you don't really have to memorize it. Uh, expansionary fiscal policy uh, causes um, a budget deficit, and a contractionary fiscal policy can cause a, an increase in budget balance, so a budget surplus. And so there is a, the, uh, there's a strong relationship between the business cycle and the budget balance. Uh, the, um, the budget balance decreases during recessions and then uh, 
increases during expansion. So it's easier to run a deficit during a recession and easier to run a surplus during an expansion. And so um, there are also automatic stabilizers in order to prevent the, uh, the I guess, the budget uh, from sort of fluctuating like this. And so there's, uh, there are policies and programs that contribute to the relationship between business cycle and uh, the budget balance. So with, um, for example, uh, with a recession, there is an increase in government transfers and decreases in taxes, which leads to a decrease in the budget balance. Uh, but it stabilizes out the recession. And then the opposite happens with the expansion. There is also a cyclically uh, adjusted budget balance, which separates the uh, changes to the budget balance from automatic stabilizers. And then it basically estimates uh, what the budget balance would be if real GDP is equivalent to the potential output. Uh, with that, there's also, of course, government debt, which is not only... Uh, which is basically the sum of all of the past budget deficits minus the sum of all of the past budget surpluses. Uh, government debt is, is typically, at least in the US, it's typically negative, which indicates uh, a government deficit, uh, budget deficit. And uh, important things to know is that the fiscal year uh, is actually from October 1st to uh, September 30th of the next year of course there's another year in between um and i guess more important things to know is uh the public is the public debt this will definitely show up in your exam this is the government debt held by individuals and institutions outside of the government um and so let's move on to reasons for concern with the budget deficit uh, so, of course, there's the crowding out effect, which I mentioned earlier, uh, where government borrowing leads to an increase in interest rates, which leads to a decrease in investment spending, which leads to a decrease in output. But um, And financial pressure on future budgets, which is basically the whole thing where the government uh, is paying off, is using their budget right now to pay off their past debt, but they're doing, but their interest on the loans that they take to pay off their past debt is greater than the amount that they're paying off. So basically they're trying to climb their way out of a hole that's getting bigger as a result of it. It's just increasing in their debt. Um, and with that, we can cover the debt to GDP ratio. Clint, if you wanted to cover that. Oh uh, yeah, sure. So, uh, governments. Uh, so the debt GDP ratio is the government's debt as a percent percentage of GDP, and it can decrease as long as GDP grows faster than debt. And the trend we see is a lot of countries actually have an increasing debt to GDP ratio over the past few years. Um, there's a, there are also implicit liabilities, uh, which are spending promises made by the government, and it's basically a debt, but it's not included in the debt statistics. With that, let's move on to more, the more advanced concepts of monetary policy. So the Taylor rule for monetary policy is a sort of a rule for setting the federal funds rate while taking into account both inflation and output gap. And so this is just more like a strategic thing. Um, I don't know if it's going to be on the AP exam, but it's much safer to memorize it. Uh, federal funds rate equals 1 plus 1 1.5 times inflation rate plus 0 0.5 times output gap. And so another strategy uh, to... Uh, 
I guess, uh, maintain economic growth is inflation targeting. And so the central bank often wants to set an explicit inflation rate target and uses a monetary policy in order to hit that target. Because when inflation happens, there's also economic growth and expansion, but too much inflation can also be a bad thing, as we'll see later. Um, so the Taylor rule, as I said earlier, adjusts monetary policy based on past inflation, while inflation targeting bases it on future inflation. So that's the major difference between these two strategies. There's also the necessity of transparency and accountability when doing inflation targeting, because obviously we want the public to know uh, what the federal, uh, what the Fed is doing with uh, the money supply. Speaking, speaking of oh, the money, I was about to say the yeah. same thing. Speaking of the money supply, we should probably cover that. Um, so, of course, we have uh, economic changes in the long run uh, based on money supply, like changes in the quantity of money affect the aggregate price level. Uh, but to note, it does not affect the aggregate output or interest rates in the long run. Um, and uh, a decrease in the money supply should raise the interest rate, which will decrease government spending, which leads to a further decrease in consumer spending. Just think about it as decreasing money supply leads to decreasing investment, decreasing consumer, and increasing interest rate. Uh, and uh, just to cover one last thing concerning money supply, we have money neutrality, which is basically the idea that changes in the money supply will create an equal and proportional response to in the long term uh, aggregate price level, since they have no real effect on the economy. So, like, for example, 50% increase in the money supply will create a 50% increase in the aggregate price level. And with that, we can move on to inflation. Clint, if you want to cover that. Yeah, I'll take that. So uh, there are actually two models. Uh, before I go into inflation, I want to review uh, economics. So there are two models when we uh, study economics. There's the classical model, which does not have a long-run aggregate supply. And rather, short-run aggregate supply is always at the long run. And so this is useful when we're measuring hyper, like countries uh, with hyperinflation. As, uh, and then there's the Keynesian model, where uh, there is an LRAS and an SRAS. Uh, GDP does not have to be in the long run always. And sticky prices slow self-correction. And so aggregate demand influences real GDP in the short run. Uh, so, that's, so oftentimes you might see questions that ask for economics according to the classical model or to a Keynesian economist. And so this is how we uh, determine uh, which graph to draw. There's uh, inflation tax. Uh, so inflation tax is just um, essentially uh, the uh, reducing value of money as people react faster to price changes whenever there's hyperinflation. And um, so inflation over time erodes at the value of money, making inflation really bad. And this leads the government to want to do uh, policies that encourage deflation or disinflation, as we'll see later. There's also, uh, so there are two types of inflations. There's a cost push inflation, which happens when SRA shifts to the left. And this increased price level while also increasing unemployment, which is bad for the economy. Uh, there's demand pull inflation, which is slightly less worse. It's a rightward shift in aggregate demand, which increases the price level, but decreases unemployment. And so um, we see this in the Phillips curve uh, with the... Um, a shift, in the, a shift in aggregate demand results in a movement along the short run Phillips curve, whereas a shift in SRAS uh, results in a movement of the SRPC curve as a whole. 
They're showing the difference between cost push and demand pull inflation. And just to know, SRAS is short run aggregate supply, just in case you forgot about yes. that. But yeah. Um, and I guess the long run Phillips curve, uh, long run Phillips curve, uh, shows the relationship between unemployment and inflation in the long run. It is equal to NIRU and NRU values. NIRU, of course, is the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment. Um, of course, to also note is debt deflation, uh, which is, and you know, deflation is like the real value of money uh, and the real value of debt, uh, which leads, wait, <laughs> I'm being dumb, sorry, deflation leads to the real value of money and the real value well the real value of money decreasing and the real value of debt decreasing or the real value of debt increasing which leads to an aggregate demand shift to the left um and two more things to know about is zero bound and the liquidity trap yeah so um if we remember uh, when uh talked about the fisher effect so um essentially um, according to the Fisher effect, uh, whenever there's a change in inflationary expectations, and nominal interest rate also changes to match that. And so uh, this can be useful uh, for when it, whenever there's inflation. But whenever there's deflation, um, there is a zero bound because uh, whenever the inflationary expectations decrease, nominal interest rate also wants to decrease, but it cannot go below zero because people would rather hold on to money than invest it in and... Uh, have a negative interest rate. And so uh, there's also the liquidity trap in which monetary policy becomes ineffective because of a uh, zero bound and deflation in which people would rather hold onto their money than invest or spend. And then this uh, causes a trap in the economy. And the interest rate cannot go below zero, so people don't want to save either. And lastly, we should cover macroeconomic policies, which is basically the federal, uh, it's just an encompassment is that even a word? And just an amalgamation, I guess, of the Federal Reserve and the government's fis uh, monetary and fiscal policies, respectively, working together to keep the, uh, the economy stable. So with that, you have discretionary monetary policy, which is, of course, just changing the interest rate of money supply uh, to help stabilize the economy. Uh, you have the quantity theory of money, which is basically just saying that there's a positive relationship between the price level and the money supply. And Clint, if you want to go over the velocity equation and the natural rate hypothesis and, you know, all the rest, uh, go ahead. Yeah, so velocity equation is just easy to memorize. Uh, MV equals PY, and it's important to remember that Y equals real GDP. I noticed that in the practice a few days ago, a lot of people kept saying that Y was equal to income, but that is not the case. MV, uh, money supply times velocity equals price level times real GDP. And one easy way to remember it is uh, Y is always equal to output in math, and so we get to give Y is equal to real output or real GDP in economics. Um, there's the natural rate hypothesis, which states that uh, unemployment rate, the unemployment rate must be high enough such that inflation is equal to the expected inflation rate. And so people will always use uh, macroeconomic po uh, policy to serve political purposes. Uh, for example, um, politicians love to run a government deficit during a recession. 
And so this can be bad for the uh, budget balance, but it helps politicians get reelected. Finally, there's the Laffer curve, um, which basically states that um, uh, some often uh, oftentimes uh, when the tax rate is uh, high, there can be little tax revenue, and same when tax rate is low. And uh, so it's just essentially a curve stating that when you approach the middle, uh, tax revenue increases. And this graph can often this curve can often uh, differ from uh, time to time for certain nations. And I uh, I think that's basically it. Do you have anything to add, Nabuchi? Uh, no, I don't think so. But again, uh, if you know your financial sector and your stabilization policies pretty well, uh, you'll do pretty well on the AP macro exam and the IB uh, economics exam if you're taking that. Just because uh, these are such a, uh, important concepts to know in general concerning economics, knowing how the monetary, uh, how monetary policy and how fiscal policy uh, helps stabilize the economy is very important. Um, so I think with that, I think that's about it. Uh, thank you for joining us for our review of the financial sector and stabilization policies. Be sure to follow us on Spotify to stay up to date with the latest releases. Until next time, listen, learn, repeat.